0: Okay. So I think we wrapped up last time talking about Bitcoin as a weapon system, um, which is a really interesting discussion. Maybe we could recap a little bit of that before we segue in today's conversation. Sure. So uh, we started our first
1: episode going into a mega deep dive into like what is life and why did it start and what does it mean and what makes life life i actually after that conversation i went to this bookstore i bought this book it's called very short history of life on earth by henry gee and i bought it because on the on the first page it talks about the beginning of life and listen to the sentence. It's talking about how life basically started as a bunch of uh, bubbles in rock. He said, these simple bubbles found themselves at the very gates of life and that they found a way to halt if temporarily and with great effort, the otherwise inexorable increase in entropy, the net amount of disorder in the universe. Such is an essential property of life these foamy lathers of soap bubble cells stood as tiny clenched fists defiant against a lifeless world. And I was totally blown away by that quote, because that is essentially exactly what our conversation was down to the part where the the role of life is to defy the entropy of the universe. hmm clenched fists so you know i I just it's great because um you know this this idea of power projection is in a lot of ways and the story of power projection is in a lot of ways a story of the cruelty of nature Mm -hmm. you know another way for to say kinetic power projection and some, sometimes kinetic power projection is just straight up violence. It's animals eating other animals. Right. Mm -hmm. But there is, you know, again, you have to put on your sociopath hat and look at life through the lens of nature, through the lens of physics, there is clearly merit to that game in some circumstances. And the main one that I can see is that, uh, is that permissionless part that we, Mm -hmm. we mentioned. And so that was pretty much the story of, of episode one was through kinetic power projection, life is able to achieve a permissionless, trustless control structure over limited resources. And in this struggle, set a pecking order where the strongest bubble to the top emerge as you know the strongest get more resources get to stay at the top of the pecking order and you want that because life is defiance against the inevitable entropy of the universe the harsh disorder of the universe so you need your fittest to be the most equipped to countervail the entropy of nature. Love life, that. Yeah. And so like this, you know, I say this word all the time. It's like a meme now on Twitter, but countervailance is <laughs> really important to understand for two reasons. One, what I just mentioned, because it's basically what life is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's like why, what makes life life do you want to see the difference between an inanimate non-lifeless or like a lifeless thing versus a life thing? The life thing is the one that's countervailing entropy. Yes. But the other one is this entire concept, you know, fast forwarding to the end of episode one is this entire, entire concept of ownership itself. Can you own, can you claim to own anything if you do not have a mechanism to countervail the control authority over property. I know that's kind of weird, but like.
0: To countervail the claims of others on it, right? To to defend it.
1: Yeah, because the alternative to that game is trust. Mm -hmm. To trust your neighbor. Right. Okay. And, you know, especially the Bitcoiners, popular theme that comes up with the Bitcoiners that mm-hmm. they should understand really well is the security flaw of trust,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Of the, the problem with trust at scale.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you, like, let's say me and you came to an agreement over that stake, okay? It's, we'll just say it's your stake and we'll carry on. You have to Trust that I will honor that agreement. Mm-hmm. If you if you don't have the option to countervail me, even mm-hmm. if you own, if you, even if you, I agree to let you own, think you own the stake. So an, another way to say it is, the lesson here is what you see as you go into the cave on Pirates of the Caribbean and the Disney Disney ride. Right mm-hmm. when you walk in, you've got that like pirate that says, "Dead men tell no tales." Right. You know what dead men also don't do? They don't break their promises. (laughs) Right. They don't. So, you know, if you want if you don't want to worry like the 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 lion doesn't have to worry about anything breaking their promise over his claim to territory because he doesn't need their promises. Mm. Dead animals don't break promises. Dead men don't break promises. I don't have to worry that you'll rat me out or you'll turn on me later if I can just succeed at the kinetic power projection game, which might not require death. It's not all like, Mm. you know, that bad, but like, we don't have to worry that China, we don't have to trust or rely on China not to break a promise. So long as we have the power projection capability to impose a prohibitive cost on their breaking their Mm -hmm. promise. And through that game, pecking order is established. It's an existential necessity for that to be established. And through that game, the fittest, both in strength, but also in intelligence arise at the top. And then we Mm -hmm. talked about all the different types of strategies that emerged. The most effective one being the colonization attack where Mm -hmm. life forms essentially just build really nice, thick, strong membranes and grow and become trees and become 80% of the biomass on earth. And you can look at that as a quote defense strategy because Mm -hmm. they're not actively maneuvering, Mm -hmm. but it's not really because when you grow, like if you focus on defense, but you grow and then you capture territory and you capture territory and then 80% of that's an offensive, right? That's a, what we, you know, what people would call offensive if you want to use that Mm. um, framework. But the other way to do it is what became animals, the thin membranes, where they try to outmaneuver each other. Mm -hmm. And those things focused a lot more on um, finding increasingly clever ways to outmaneuver each other and be more intelligent. So have you ever noticed how trees don't have brains? And have you ever thought to yourself, like, why don't they? It's because they don't need them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Brains are like what you need if you need to outthink and outmaneuver your opponent. That's something Mm -hmm. for animals to do. A tree with a, you know, a really thick trunk and deep roots doesn't need to think or outmaneuver because it's a tree. Like, you know, until humans came along with chainsaws, there was no defeating a tree or with an axe, right? Like. The tree you know the trees in the Sahara don't care about the apex mammals, right? right. They, they're not strong enough to break their membranes. So why do you even need a brain? Why do you even need eyeballs? Why right. do you need teeth Trees have none of those things? And another so we talked a whole bunch about like all these different power projection strategies, increasingly clever ones
0: let's if can i jump in here um this I, I the useful definition that came to me through our discussions and i think i got this from another book as well but uh the idea of defining life as that which imports energy and exports entropy so this does a number of things is it it implies that there's a membrane right there's some layer that within which is that which is alive and without which is what is being um, combated against or countervailed, I guess, to use your favorite term. And so in this dynamic, there is a utility of violence. That's what animals are doing when they eat plants or eat each other, right? They're basically uh, commandeering the work of another strategy, another species, uh, or even, even of the same species, another animal another organism uh where they're consuming right whatever energy has been imported into that strategy whether this is sunlight into a tree or the grass into a cow whatever you're now basically commandeering that energy to fund your own little economy or you're importing their energy and exporting entropy so i think that's really interesting that there's because life is really hard to define um and the quote you opened with where it emerged originally as I guess what are the, these are basically bubbles right or little yeah. so uh, he, little he calls them or foam is kind of what I'm imagining
1: yeah he, he literally calls them he says the earliest life the earliest living things were no more than scummy membranes across microscopic gaps in rocks mm. and to your point he even he even says it he talks about, these uh, membranes were porous they made virtue of their leakiness using holes as gateways for energy and nutrients and as exit points for wastes Hmm. so their membrane was able to allow energy and nutrients into the membrane into the bubble and entropy waste right right that that disorder out
0: and this is a selective permeability, right? Or something. Mm-hmm. I think that's the term. And we still have that. That's the, in the cells of organisms. Each cell wall is selectively permeable. It takes in food and it exports waste. Um I just wanted to point out here that that definition of life, like a an open system that imports energy and exports entropy. That really broadens the scope of what's alive because now all of a sudden like well a city does that, a yeah. business does that. Um you know, a nation state does that. So all these things are kind of like um, organisms in their own way. And that, that definition of life emerging as bubbles, like that's also in my study of how states emerge, that's how they emerge. They emerge as these little protected economic enclaves, right? Someone, the big guy or big guys established a territorial boundary and said inside of this,
1: this is my membrane.
0: This is our membrane. This is our territory. All the commerce that occurs within this territory, I get a cut of it, right? Which is taxation or tribute. And anyone that tries to come into that membrane that's not welcome, we will project power to countervail their efforts. Yeah. Um, so I just very wanted nice. to highlight that as like, it's this is a very universal discussion. It's not just uh, flesh and bone organic species we're talking about here. These are all open systems that are importing energy, exporting entropy.
1: Yeah, one more quote from him is, even though they were porous, so he's referring to these membranes, the environment inside the membranes became different from the raging maelstrom beyond, calmer and more ordered. So to your point, when we started talking about agrarian society, we framed it as a a, a bubble, happening right around the rivers or right around the areas where they were able to start irrigating land mm-hmm. in the middle of the giant Eurasian bloodbath that was nature at the time, right? Mm-hmm. They're in, all their neighbors are uh, pretty brutal. And so mm-hmm. these people, when they formed these first societies, they were forming another layer of order Mm -hmm. beyond that, which existed before. And, and, and that is what life is. It's this whole whole stack and it's extremely unclear where to actually draw the boundary because if, you know, at scale, at a holistic level, you look like Robert, I look like Jason, we appear at scale to be distinct, you know, a single living organism. But if I look at you through a microscope, it's a totally different, yeah, that's a city Mm -hmm. in itself. And if I keep on going deeper, deeper, and the same is true for the other way. So if we zoom out, Mm -hmm. like imagine if aliens came to, visit earth. What would they see? Like, what would they just describe what they would see? They would see all sorts of different animals, but if they were to like describe what a country was, they would say, Oh, look, there's these different pools of creatures Mm -hmm. that are all engaging in a brute force power competition against each other to effectively establish a pecking order over these different resources that are limited on this planet. And especially for nations themselves, if you look at it holistically, we are 195 different pools of power projectors that are all doing this brute force competition specifically to prevent any other pool from achieving 51% control over the limited resources of Earth. So. Like, what scale, you know, the difference between centralization and decentralization and all these concepts that we talk about kind of change depending on what what scale you look at it. But what's always true is there is a boundary, Mm -hmm. and inside the boundary is order Mm -hmm. and different self assembling proteins defying the chaos of the universe. Mm -hmm. And then outside of that, bubble is the maelstrom.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And the the visual I have here too, is, you know, we have a hundred, like you said, 195 ish of these economic bubbles or membranes all trying to have a profitable balance of, you know, net energy importation. So, importing energy minus exporting entropy they're in they're in profit basically but this ins, this insinuates that there is antagonism between them right because they're all exporting entropy onto one another effectively um and that's the contention so i guess one way of thinking about bitcoin is like it's a new uh new protocol or order beneath which all of these organizations would be f- forming themselves. And it would reduce the need for, uh, in particular, as we get into kinetic warfare between these little bubbles. Um, I wanted to add here too. So that idea where you said the enclave started along the river where we would irrigate land. Uh, the thought I had about this is where s- in those enclaves, you're essentially increasing the amount of energy that's being harnessed, mostly from the sun, but also from water and whatnot through agriculture. So that buildup of economic surplus or energy collection, that becomes an incentive for outsiders to invade, right? So the the cell membrane is an absolute necessity, because if you don't have it, then whatever you work to create, outsiders are just going to come and harvest. So this there's a positive correlation between the need for defense and the amount of energy being imported. Um, and in
1: the, from the sociopath perspective, it makes sense. Like you created this juicy target with abundance of energy. Like, of course, it's going to be targeted. Mm-hmm. Well, why? Why would? This four billion year old game of life stop right at you know the emergence of agrarian society, right? And this con and this human invented concept of quote like morals, like oh, it's yes. you know we're predators. We're uh, you have to know your roots.
0: Yes, right? which this gets to the economics of force itself, right? It will. It will always be targeted so long as there's energy there. But if the defense is adequate, then the cost benefit for the attacker is out of favor, right? Mm -hmm. If they can't penetrate the defense, then they're going to go elsewhere because they can't do it profitably or at all. So there's this real deep concept of defending property economically that sort of contributes to civilization. And The
1: trail of life's evolution, if we pick apart all the major ones that kind of took life to the, you know, from a foamy bubble to me and you talking on Zoom, each one of those major evolutions can be viewed through the lens of increasingly clever ways to project power. And if you study those really carefully, you see some major ones. You see things like cooperation becoming a very effective strategy, not because of morals, mm. but because you can sum power together. Yes. So cooperation is a predatory tactic. That's why right. lions hunt together in packs. Mm. Or we, we didn't talk about it, but this concept of death, of limited lifespans but what's the word again senescence senescence okay so scientists can actually reproduce this phenomenon you put yeast in a bowl or you spin it around you give it enough time eventually the genetics will mutate to the point where the membranes are sticky and this and these bubbles get stuck together and this gets back to our first episode where the the first examples of cooperation as a predatory tactic happened involuntarily they didn't know what they were doing it was a mutation for these animals they just literally just clustered and stuck together they were forced to be cooperative because they had no option but what's even cooler is if you allow these sticky cells to cluster together, eventually they'll hit a mutation where they have limited lifespan. They actually have like this little ticking time bomb that clicks and after a certain time frame, boom, the cell dies. And that'll force these clusters of yeast to split. And now you become two different distinct uh, bubble boundaries, right? Membranes, I guess, mm-hmm. like you know, multicellular creatures but even more so remember this whole discussion that we talked about entrepreneurialism and the imperative to change or die because the environment Mm -hmm. is changing or dying Mm -hmm. with what, what the clever, what the animals figured out is you can actually cycle through more features. Like you can test out more competitive strategies by By hard coding a limited lifespan into each of these cells, Uh it literally forces them to change. It literally forces the old dogs who can't learn new tricks to go away so that the new dogs have a chance to test new features in a production environment and in nature. So by having limited lifespans, you actually are able to cycle through more features in a production environment to learn faster what works and what doesn't. And some branch off and are complete failures. And they're just like, you get like the platypus and you're just like, what the hell was that? Like, you know, or you get like a manatee and you're just like, okay, that thing definitely not gonna (laughs) like, I don't know how it's not extinct yet, but you also get eyeballs, you get teeth, you get camouflage, you get thumbs, you get prefrontal cortexes, you get all these things. Right. And so, you know, have you ever, you know, we talked about earlier, have you noticed how trees don't have brains? Have you noticed how tree, trees don't really have lifespans? Like the oldest animals on or the oldest living creatures on the, in the world are the plants.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They didn't need to You what's called senescence. I, I never remember yeah, the
0: world. senescence. They, they
1: didn't uh, need senescence as a competitive yeah. strategy because again, You know, a tiger can't cut down a tree. Like they're strong as hell. Yeah. But for the animal size, they do, and so animals have significantly shorter lifespans than their colonizing competitors in plants. Right. So, so, you know, to recap, everything is aging is a power projection strategy. It forces the species as a whole. Mm-hmm. To continue to try new things in order to become the dominant uh, predator essentially in in the environment.
0: Yeah, brilliant you said one thing that jumps out at me here is this whole idea that really uh, so sexual reproduction, Right, you've every generation you're mixing, remixing the genes and combinations of genes to test new features. Basically, you also have death, so the that's also increasing the number of features that are being tested. As you said, I think the underlying dynamic here is the intensity of exchange. Right, that it actually makes more exchanges at the genetic level occur right? The fact that you have to sexually reproduce and you die and there's new sets of genes being tested in the environment means there's more exchange happening. And we know through like a praxeological lens, the more free exchange in a marketplace, the more wealth is being created. So this is like, it's wealth, it's a wealth creation strategy at a genetic or biological level. And then I guess you could carry it further and say, the reason humans are so dominant is because we've taken that, we've extended that beyond our own biology right? We've increased the intensity of exchange through an economic process. So we now are able to test, you know, exponentially more uh, features and their fittedness to our purposes in the environment. And that, and a lot of that is through the things we've talked about last time, like shared abstractions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's why we're the dominant species, right? Because we have a greater intensity of exchange, creating more wealth, uh, even beyond our own biological algorithm.
1: Yeah, the because we have these like really badass computers in our heads, we can run this software and software isn't these ideas. Like we can form these ideas mm-hmm. which aren't limited by physics or sorry, they're not limited by like mass. Yeah. So we can actually think of more different things to try faster than biology can like change genetic code to try new features. Right. And we can build stuff faster than genetics can build stuff. And as a result of us being able to try new features in a production environment to essentially, essentially capture more energy and dump more entropy Mm it's no surprise that we've slaughtered the, you know, we've wrecked everyone around us because uh, we're just using the same strategies that life already has proven are just faster, just faster. Yeah. And at, and at larger scale.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's mind blowing. And the, and the historical record bears that out, right? Everywhere man goes, there's like, we slaughter all the animals we start cutting down trees like we really conquer physically conquer the environment
1: yeah you can i don't remember like maybe it was 2 million years ago i, I don't i don't remember all my anthropology but like once you know humans became like distinctly human and there's all those different types of humans like the sapiens neanderthals or mm-hmm. whatever you can see in the record that the average size of mammals decreased by 10x Mm-hmm. like right because we went around killing everything it wasn't just sapiens it was like yeah. everybody but by the time ten thousand years ago where we kind of just stopped slaughtering everything it was largely because we slaughtered everything like we, we got to the point where we have overhunted and we you know some of it was because we needed to like like we needed to genetically enslave rx because all these other different types of animals aren't around anymore. And it's like, Oh crap. If we don't figure out a new clever way to harvest their energy, then mm-hmm. we're not going to have anything. We're not going to have any meat left. Right. And also, and it's kind of unclear who's, who's uh genetically altering who, but when we talk about irrigation, not only are we domesticating animals, but we're also domesticating like plants too so mm-hmm. like an orange isn't a natural like that didn't exist before humans started irrigation
0: mm-hmm.
1: bananas didn't exist like these are things that we literally created like you know the like the uh, wiener dog
0: yeah artificial selection versus natural selection right
1: yeah that's the kind way of saying it artificial selection <laughs> where humans are selecting by yeah yeah
0: or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. You know, irrigation is such an apt analogy because there's an excellent book by Dawkins titled A River Out of Eden. And he describes genetics as a river through time. So species are each a, a channel or flow of genetic information across time, and it can branch into other species and whatnot. But that's essentially what humans are doing, right? We're redirecting this flow of genetic information towards the orange that tastes good and away from the orange that doesn't, or towards the cute wiener dog and away from the wolf, whatever it is. Yeah. Like we're consciously directing the flow of genetics across time.
1: Yeah. And it, you know, as bloody as that has been, there's clear like it's clearly working like we've left the planet and started we've begun to colonize other bodies in the universe like we've hit mm. you know we've walked people on the moon and we've got rovers on virtually every planet in the solar system now so like yes. we're clearly doing good at uh doing well at starting to countervail the entropy of the universe because it's like we're planting like there's an American flag on the moon right now like
0: yeah
1: it's working um and so you know like we have to understand the imperative of this dog eat dog world that we live in Mm -hmm. because you know the alternative is you let unfit life have all the resources and we don't get to plant the flag on the moon.
0: There's something about subduing lower levels, right? Whether it's inorganic reality or lower levels of biological reality that promotes our own freedom, right? We've, we've subdued or genetically enslaved a lot of plants. As you've described, we've domesticated a lot of animals, Well, that's like the energy foundation on which we stand, right? We still benefit from that today. Every time you go to the grocery store, you're benefiting from that. And it's not, uh, we
1: we also rely on it too. So it's not like we can just, it's not like we're just killing everything and burning everything. It's, It's we're restructuring it to be more in order. Mm-hmm. At our whatever level of the membrane you want to consider it. So inside the city is, or inside this country is just, it's not death. It's just more ordered and more structured life. Yes.
0: Yes. And this is like clearly everything we're laying out here. It's like essential to the story of humanity becoming what we are today. But there is this dangerous line that gets crossed. And we've crossed it plenty of times throughout human history where we're like, okay, you know, we're subduing uh, plants and animals, but we also subdue one another, right? We've we've had many institutions of slavery um, throughout history. And that one, you know, it can contribute to economic efforts in the short run, but as technology advances labor becomes a smaller component of the cost structure. And further, there's very clear moral implications. This idea of, uh, you know, really the idea of, uh, all men are created equal, right? That's an idea. That's a psycho psychotechnological update or a, or a shared abstraction under which we're still trying to or- organize ourselves 250 years later. Um, But I I just wanted to point that out that there is clearly is a very useful strategy, this subduing process, but it can be taken too far into a domain that's uh, morally questionable or even reprehensible.
1: But also when we get into those bad situations, look at how we got out of those bad situations. (laughs) it was through the projection of power to countervail the control authority of the dominant control authority. So, Mm -hmm. so you, the the point is you have to, if you do not have the mechanism to countervail control authority, you are not free. You are not living either. Right. By the definition of, of life being the ability to, you know, rebel against the entropy of the,
0: of the universe,
1: if you are totally victim to that, which is what is the problem with proof of stake, which we can get into later. But mm-hmm. if you have no mechanism to countervail, if you have no mechanism to kill the king, mm-hmm. then you can't claim to be free and you can't claim to own anything either. Right. Because you, you have to trust, it. yeah, you have to trust the other person. And uh yeah, like if they just choose to not let you have access to it, then you have no yeah you just have to accept it like there's
0: so yeah. yeah you've got no leverage right you need there has to be and really it it ultimately seems to largely be technological like i'm thinking about when the knight on horseback was the law of the land for a long time until we invented gunpowder so then all of a sudden the, the knight on horseback that could contend with 20 peasants in armed combat now, a single peasant could take out take out the knight from 200 yards with a rifle. So all of a sudden, you know, this little innovation of gunpowder gave the peasant the ability to countervail the willpower of the knight on horseback.
1: Yeah, and and also, like, if we get to before gunpowder, the great thing, and I know I sound like a sociopath, but I have to in order to, <laughs> you have to because what we're talking about right now is proof of work. Yeah. Once you understand the role of power projection, the role of violence, the role of uh, and the necessity to be able to countervail control authority, you realize that there is no substitute for proof of work. There will never right. be a substitute for proof right. of work. And so to understand how life can scale to the point where a multiplanetary se- species, we have to, like, if we want to predict how the future is going, we have to predict what shape and what form proof of work will take in the future. And right. Bitcoin is probably going to be it. But before we get there, the cool thing about this night game is that like the rich guy is equally as vulnerable to a sword in the heart as the poor person. <laughs> so there is a meritocracy in this power projection game. The slave with a with a sword is pretty close to the same as the soldier with a sword. In fact, you know, one of the most common ways of growing up the ladder within an agrarian society is to go from the farmer or the, you know, the person at the bottom to the, the person holding the sword and, mm-hmm. and, and wielding it effectively. So, you know, the rich guy who gets shot through the face with a bullet is the same as the poor guy who gets shot in the face, of the bullet, like they're, equal. And so in this game, this power projection game, there is not a um, imbalance. It's it's not unfair. It's ruthlessly
0: egalitarian.
1: It is. Yeah. It's honest. Nature is a very honest judge. Yeah. Ruthlessly egalitarian is a, is a great way of putting it. And if you don't have that ability, then you have to consider, okay, what are the alternatives? And the alternatives are always, uh, well, they're not what people intrinsically or instinctively believe as fair Mm. or they, or they are, they require trust.
0: Yeah. It's, very interesting, and there's something about here with trust. Um, you know, ethos and Bitcoin don't trust verify. I guess you could say too that if you can just trust someone's self-interest, right? If you know they're in, the incentives they face, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you don't really need to trust them so much. You're trusting something beneath them, even. You're trusting, you know, the the incentives that shape their behavior. So. You know, as we said earlier, trust doesn't necessarily scale in society. So, what do we need to do? We need to create systems that align individual self-interest um, with, uh, I guess, the these collective protocols that are, you know, sort of universally fair. Kind of mirroring this ruthlessly egalitarian situation you're saying. So, we have a rule of law that applies equally to all, like that's that's a useful technology, right? or property Mm -hmm. rights that apply to all, that's a a useful technology. But um, I guess the trap we've always been in is the enforcer of those rules also has an incentive to abdicate from those rules or remake the rules in their own favor. And that's what we've been struggling with.
1: Yeah. And and when that happens, you... You get a larger, like to defeat that is to cooperate at larger scale Mm -hmm. or to project power in a more clever way. And as a result of that power projection and mass cooperation, you get more order at scale. Mm -hmm. So it gets back to the, the ultra society thesis and philanthropy where the most advanced you can measure how much animals cooperate with each other like you can measure them but measure it by the amount of time that they spend building something together so a bee to how how much do bees cooperate at scale well you measure how many bee hours it takes to build a beehive how many ant how how much do ants cooperate at scale measure how many ant hours it requires to build a colony or whatever they build if you compare what you think are massive cooperators, like you see these massive ant colonies, and you're just like, wow, they can cooperate at such large scales. That's nothing compared to what humans can do. If you measure human hours required to build a pyramid Mm -hmm. or human hours required to build an ISS, Mm -hmm. the International Space Station, it dwarfs the ant colony. And then if you measure individual societies across history, right? What are they look at the temple that they built and how many hours it took to build that temple? You'll see a direct correlation. The those those uh, civilizations that are cooperating at the largest scale to putting the most hours to build a single thing, a build mm-hmm. a single temple, are the ones that are warring. Those mm-hmm. are the ones that are best at war. Those are the Romans. Those are um, the Ottomans. They're the United Kingdom. They're the, Genghis Khan, right? They're the Egyptians. And so, um, yeah, it's like, yes, you know, we get these problems from time to time where people try to abuse their power projection capability. But so long as we maintain the ability to countervail them, you don't have to worry. And Mm -hmm. that was, Where we were up until the point where we improve the operational effectiveness, we call it, of war to the point where we get to nukes. And then it's like, oh, crap, there is no way to countervail the control authority of a nuclear armed state without risking mutual annihilation and destruction of the species and life all of a sudden just hits a stopping point. Mm-hmm. You get we we by the way when you know when the United States had nukes we effectively 51% percent attacked the world with our uh, you know brute force power projection capability. So so USSR had to just focus all their attention on on nukes so we could at least get out of that Fifty-one percent attack, and now we've got multiple nuclear powers. So, mm-hmm. no one single nuclear power can has full control or authority over all the stuff. But we've now hit a, hit a hit a what is effectively a stalemate still. And and how like it gets straight back to what we talked about earlier. If you can't countervail a nuclear state, are you free? do you actually own the thing? And, 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 so if you're a country that's like, you know, a North Korea, they, what do they care about? They care about getting to nukes as fast as possible mm-hmm. so that le- at least they could be at counter parity with the other uh, top dogs. And, and so it, we're just such in such a dangerous situation at a macroscopic level And so life has to figure out a way to turn. Mm -hmm. And it's not the first time that a a species has reached a point where they have to evolve a new brute force power competition capability that doesn't risk extinction of the species. That's what antlers are. Mm -hmm. They, they grow protrusions out of their faces and then they fight each other still in a kinetic power projection capability, but in a, what is usually a non-lethal
0: mm-hmm.
1: competition and the winner of that competition gets the mayor or the territory or whatever. And, be, or, you know, there's, it's not just antlers. There's like bugs that do this too. And, and they're not even always antlers. It's, you know, you look at birds, like birds of paradise and they're just funny, like look at a peacock look at that power projection competition. (laughs) Like, right. Like that's interesting one. It's, it's, uh, it's non-lethal. And they use that as the mechanism to establish intraspecial pecking order. So humans are now at a point where we must, if we want to continue to live in a free place where the individual sovereign can claim to own anything without having to trust, then we have to find an intraspecial surrogate competition. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's really what makes Bitcoin so profound is because at the systemic or at the physics level, it is still joules per second, like instead of putting bullets down a a cylinder with gunpowder, you put electricity down the barrel of a miner and you fire it at another mining pool. And you agree that whoever wins that competition earns the underlying digital property. And you've reestablished a protocol that allows for countervailance Meaning, I don't have to worry about a single, I guess you say, you don't have to worry about, there's a hundred percent probability that the top power projectors can be impeached. or I guess there's zero percent probability that the top power projectors can't be impeached. So as long as you have the mechanism to kill the king, as long as you have a mechanism to impeach the control authority of the top power projectors, then you can claim to be in a quote, fair or free uh, system. If you don't have that mechanism, then it's trust-based and it's not free. You you just are, you counting on the benevolence of the, of the people who are in control of the property.
0: Yeah. That's so well said. And um, I guess what I'm seeing here is, is like this, Power projection is so fundamental. I mean, it is the most fundamental aspect of existence and physical reality as a biological organism, something like that. And we hit a stalemate with nukes, right? Because you mm-hmm. can't push that game any further without mutually assured destruction, as you said. So we it's almost like, Bitcoin is absolutely essential. You need an alternative channel for the power projection game, for these energies that, that course through us. Like we all have a competitive instinct, you know, at least to some extent. You wanna go out into the world and do things, there's, there's some competition implied in that. So Bitcoin mining then becomes this new outlet for these natural competitive Darwinian energies.
1: But what is essential is what we call today proof of work. We need an alternative mechanism to engage in power projection, to have a competition, a fair competition. Remember, what makes it fair is the rich person suffers the same as the poor person when they get hit in the face with a bullet. Mm-hmm. So you need to have a fair joules per second versus joules per second competition the winner of which earns the right to set and state the set to set the state and chain of custody of an underlying resource that you both mutually depend on and so this is where like when level 39 found the Tesla article, the problem of scaling human energy back in like written in like 1900, somewhere around the turn of the century, Tesla predicted this exact thing. He, he predicted that humans would improve the operational effectiveness of warfare to the point where he predicted uh, basically death laser beams, like Mm -hmm. the whole entire planet would be, covered with these beams that could just destroy, like it would be impenetrable basically. Like it mm-hmm. would it would make it impossible to invade a country because they have these death rays. Mm-hmm. But the point is he envisioned a nuclear stale, or not a nuclear, he envisioned a stalemate,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? There would reach a point where humans were so good at this game that we would achieve a stalemate. It came through nukes. He he never lived to see the first nuclear weapon go off, but but because of that stalemate, he predicted that the humans would have to turn to machines fighting machines in an energy competition mm-hmm. to settle disputes to reestablish a permissionless control structure over an underlying property. Right, and then twenty years after that, Edison and Ford are saying hey, the solution to war is we stop monetizing gold, but we start monetizing energy. And so he's Mm -hmm. going to like a plant to try to set up a, you know, try to start this new idea of energy money. So these top dogs of the American Industrial Revolution were already forecasting 100 years ago that we would reach a stalemate, that we would need to monetize energy and that the future of warfare would be machine versus machine energy competitions. So proof of work, they like all, they all predicted proof of work and, mm-hmm. and uh, energy money. It just, they didn't have the technology quite mature enough to make it work yet. Then the question becomes, okay, so proof of work is clearly a way that you can resolve the stalemate and restore permissionless control over property so that intraspecially we can continue this power projection game that is essential for nominating the strongest up to the top and countervailing the entropy of the universe. But it wasn't clear what that would be. Like, would it be Bitcoin or would it be some other proof of work coin? Like it, it, you can't know what it would be. So then the question is, all right, let's just assume it does make sense. The future of warfare will be machines versus machines. They're going to improve operational effectiveness of warfare way more so than like humans, like having a human in the loop in the future is going to be the limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Right? Like humans have no chance at competing against AI throne cluster fights like that hat that's going to have to be a human out of the loop fight where we just let them engage and then we you know we just agree that whoever wins that fight but would it be bitcoin does it like what would it be and so so the question is how would you know it if you see it like if you know that the future of evolution and scaling of cooperation amongst human beings is going to be some type of proof of work, power projection game an electric one probably in the digital domain, because that's the one that's resilient to nukes. Mm. What would it look like? It would be made out of technolo- technology that's nuclear hardened, which is what TCPIP IP is. And the internet is it's, that's why it was, that's why it was created. Mm. And then, and then you realize, okay, well, whatever that future proof of work protocol for war fighting is like, whatever that's going to be is just going to be the most adopted one. Mm -hmm. Like whatever the most people agree to is the future of proof of work. Uh-huh. Fighting, and that's already Bitcoin by like many, many orders of magnitude. Like uh-huh. you can measure the proof of the amount of energy that is being fired through the barrel of all the miners combined uh-huh. on the Bitcoin network versus on some other proof of work chain, and Bitcoin dwarfs it by like you know hundred thousand or something. Yeah. So that you you because you know I get accused of being in a maxi all the time. I don't identify as a Bitcoin maxi. I identify as a proof of work maxi. <laughs> if the future of warfare is going to be the power projection game that most people agree to play, that's already Bitcoin. It's yeah. already happening right now, right in front of us. And so all I think is going to happen is that's going to continue to be the thing. Yes. Why? Because these idiots are... are <laughs> These other idiots are thinking that this is like, you know, an ESG problem and and pivoting away from right. proof of work. Like the most important thing is the proof of work. And that's labeled as like a bad thing now. And people are pivoting away. And it's like, holy crap, we've we've got the strategic corner in the market now. Bitcoin is has such a huge lead. And I don't know of any way that it's going to go away at this point. Yeah.
0: And this is such a crucial, crucial point for explaining you know why bitcoin not any other coin because people are choosing voluntarily to play this bitcoin game you know to hold bitcoin relative to all other coins because the properties that it's rendering to them the services it's rendering to them it's already optimized for holders right and this is why i always talk about the properties of money um you know, divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. In particular, with a fixed supply, it's like it's it's perfect. There's no unexpected inflation. What else could you want in a store of value? Something you know that's a perfectly fixed supply, and is has credibly resisted the attempted countervailing efforts of others. If you go, go study the block wars from 2017. Yep. There was an attempt to countervail and co-opt this Bitcoin game, and it failed. So Bitcoin has these battle scores. It kind of proves um, its its, uh, sufficiency, I guess, at at remaining what it uh, sets out to be. Can I ask you uh, one here, you mentioned TCP IP is nuclear hardened. I just was wondering if you could expand upon that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So back in the day, we have different command centers across the United States. These were the the first major ones were of, uh, were basically strategically vital. They were the command centers that launched nukes. And so you had to build redundancy between these centers. And so the the first intranets were all the STRATCOM nuclear command and control defense, communi- like the, the nuclear communication networks for the United States. So that if Russia shoots first and hits Cheyenne mountain or hits some major comm center, it won't it, it's a it's decentralized network. it won't mm-hmm. it won't destroy the whole network. So you have to be able to preserve and, comms and also um, uh, synchronize comms across massive geographic distance in order to preserve nuclear resilience during a nuclear strike, otherwise you're screwed. So that started, that became DARPAnet. So by the way, you know, what, what am I saying? I'm saying because of the threat of death, right. Because of war, we started creating increasingly clever ways to do stuff, which became a big deal beyond just war. Like civilization now is thriving because of the invention of these intranets. The problem came, well, like, how do you connect other intranets to this computer if they're using totally different com protocols. And so you get to the same problem that we're having with Bitcoin, which is there's all these different types of networks. We need one network to rule them all. And so DARPA was just like, or the military was just like, okay, it's going to be TCP IP because that's what we have. And they forced it down the entire military's throats and the military, Was the technology leader at the time. And so TCPIP emerged as what became the intranet, the protocol through which computers talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And it's not the first time a military has created a common protocol. This happened. This happens a lot, actually, in history. Another really common example is the Roma WIA, the uh, Roman road network Mm -hmm. that the Roman Legion started. Back Mm -hmm. in the day, the easiest way to get supplies to include military logistical supplies was port to port. If you look at Italy, it's like a really great, uh, it's like really skinny. Mm -hmm. And so you can get from one port to the other port. And it's actually like a really good way to get to cross ports if you Mm -hmm. develop a road network on Mm -hmm. land to support it. But the problem is, well, what's the common, like what? size road should we build? Like what is the common protocol for the wagons that we're going to haul? And so the Roman legion was like, okay, from now on a road will be this wide and the tracks in the road where it's smooth to allow for like wheels Mm -hmm. will be this wide. And they created a wheel-based protocol and said, if we want to connect this port to this port, then we must use this common wheelbase protocol. And so all wagons were designed to have the exact same wheelbase protocol. And it's basically the width between two horses asses. If you put mm-hmm. them next to each other, mm-hmm. like you're pulling something, it's basically the width, like the tail width between the tails of horses is the mm-hmm. w- common uh, width of a wheelbase. Well, that that is good for logistics because now you can create common packets. Um, you can transpose freight in a common wheelbase protocol. They started connecting more roads. As they connected more roads, Metcalf's law takes off. Mm-hmm. You've created a mesh network, a common road network to connect ports to each other. Again, we're talking—it's the same. You've created an intranet. Yeah. So what happens for countries outside, and they want to connect to the Roman ports to do trade? Well, it's in their best interest to adopt the same protocol the Romans started. Right. So they all adopt the same wheelbase protocol. And so now today, if you go to visit the ancient ruins of Rome and you measure that wheelbase protocol, the tracks down the roads that was started by the Roman Legion, it happens to be the exact width of every railway Mm -hmm. in the world, which happens to be the width that governs the form factor of every shipping container Mm -hmm. in the world. Which happens to be, you know, the form factor that got governed the width of, you know, most of the pieces on the ISS. So common protocols are kind of a big deal. Uh, they start as a as an existential necessity of the, winning this power projection game over pecking order, mm-hmm. whether it be a wheelbase protocol, whether it be a internet protocol whether it be a 120 volt outlet in your house whether it be what's the future proof of work electric warfighting protocol mm. right like it's gonna it's uh, pretty interesting how uh, these networks emerge
0: that's super cool i the us interstate system i think too was deployed by the military. So it just seems to be a recurrent pattern.
1: Yeah, um, it's common for new technologies to emerge from the R&D labs of militaries because usually that R&D is um, not really cost effective for like a business. It's changed a lot recently in the last 40 years where a lot of the new badass bleeding edge tech is coming from private labs, mm-hmm. not from the military. But if you zoom out and look at agrarian society as a whole, there there's a tendency for war fight, uh, new technology to emerge through the necessity of war fighting and yeah. then, or mature fastest through the necessity of war fighting before going into the public. Mm. Protocols being one of the most pervasive that and underappreciated,
0: in my opinion. Yes. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, and it's somewhat, you know, Sailor made the point about, I guess it was, you know, Carnegie effectively monopolizing the steel industry. And, you know, just in a natural monopoly, but he established these protocols, right? Like, uh, I don't know all the details, but I guess the size and dimensions of the beam and all of that. And then How eventually much carbon, yeah, is well, in
1: each unit of steel,
0: yeah, and if it if the network footprint, i guess is sufficient that it becomes a shelling point, basically, right? And the whole market then adapts to these protocols. Um, so it's just it's interesting. It's almost like you need centralization to establish the protocol within the protocol. Accelerates decentralization because all of the, the economic efficiency created by it, you know, passes wealth out into the network. So there's an interesting interplay between central centralized decision making and then decentralized um wealth creation.
1: Yeah, the, the centralization. What is centralization? Centralization is people cooperating together at larger scales, or it is one of the mechanisms of power projection, centralized command and control, or um, a bunch of people working in one direction. And so it's really the threat of, we'll call it war for agrarian society, but it's the need for defense drives the need to centralize and cooperate and there's that there's that tension there if that makes sense
0: yeah